Hippias had dreamed that he was sleeping with his mother, and he supposed that the dream meant that he would return to Athens, recover power, and die peacefully at home in old age. Herodotus then continues with Hippias now having landed at Marathon. He happened to be seized by an unusually violent fit of sneezing and coughing. And, as he was an oldish man, and most of his teeth were loose, he coughed one of them right out of his mouth. It fell somewhere in the sand, and though he searched and searched in his efforts to find it, it was nowhere to be seen. Hippias then turned to his companions, and said with a deep groan, This land is not ours. We shall never be able to conquer it. The only part I ever had in it, my tooth possesses so the meaning of the dream was now clear to him. Herodotus, The Histories Hello, I'm Mark Selleck, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, Episode 16, The First Persian Invasion. Another revolt within the Persian Empire had now been stamped out. The Persians, since their foundation under Cyrus, had been dealing with revolts in all corners of their lands. Some had required urgent attention in bringing under control, while others were more of a nuisance than anything else. The latest, the Ionian Revolt, has come down to us today as a major and important event in the Empire. Though this is due to the fact that the revolt directly involved the Greek world. From a Persian perspective, this wasn't the greatest threat they had faced in their empire. Darius had not seen it as such a great threat for him, as he did not directly lead the campaign against it. But there were areas within the revolt that were seen to be important to get under control as soon as possible, namely those that had an impact on trade routes. The Ionians had risen up against their Persian overlords, but were ultimately defeated after five years of revolt. The Athenians and the Eretrians from the Greek mainland had provided assistance to their Ionian cousins, which did not go unnoticed from the Persian king Darius. Once the last pockets of the Ionian resistance were stamped out, Darius wasted no time in arranging the resources of the empire to be directed at mainland Greece. These resources would be directed in two separate expeditions, which would culminate in the first Persian invasion. One would somewhat be of an island-hopping campaign which would make its way to the Bay of Marathon in the region of Attica, while subjecting other island city-states along the way. But first a campaign was sent by land back into Thrace, north of Greece as much of the region along with parts of Macedon needed to be consolidated again after the disruption of the Ionian Revolt. This overland expedition would also be shadowed by a large naval contingent off the coast. One would assume that a successful campaign in Thrace would provide a strong platform for an invasion into Greece from the north. These initial campaigns would usher in a period that historians, starting with Herodotus, have referred to for over 2,000 years as the Greek and Persian Wars. By 492 BC, enough resources and men had been assembled to embark on the campaign into Thrace. For this expedition, a large army would be met at the Hellespont by a naval force that would transport the army from the eastern side over into Europe. For the campaign, Darius had elevated his son-in-law, Mardonius, to command the forces. During this first Persian invasion, Darius would not take an active role in commanding the army against Greece. This has led some historians to suggest that the campaign did not have the intention of subjugating all of Greece at this stage, though the Greeks were convinced otherwise. Mardonius travelled with the fleet, which then sailed for the Hellespont, where he would then also take command of the army. During Mardonius's journey, we hear from Herodotus that he converted the Ionian cities that had been recently resubjugated into democracies. 
but it appears that most of the cities had had tyrants reinstalled in them. It was common for the Persians to allow some form of autonomy in subjugated people's local politics, or religion, as this approach saw less revolts breaking out less frequently. Mardonius may have just been installing new tyrants and enacting this policy which gave it an appearance of some freedoms from the people's point of view. Once Mardonius and the fleet arrived and transported the land forces across the Hellespont, the army then marched on through Thrace, with the navy following the coastline, shadowing the march. The island of Thassos was brought under Persian control by the navy, while the army marched into Macedonia, bringing under Persian control the areas that had not been previously subjugated. After the fleet's victory over Thassos, they sailed to catch back up to where the army had marched. To do this, they would need to round the three isthmuses of the Chalcidides, with the 2,000 metre high Mount Athos at the tip of the first. As the fleet started to round Mount Athos, a violent storm battered the ships, dashing much of the fleet against the rocks. Herodotus tells us that he heard reports that talk about 300 ships and 20,000 men being lost. Monsters occupied the sea in the area, who many of the men fell victim to. Presumably, these were most likely sharks. Around the same time of the fleet's disaster, the Persian army, while camped in Macedonian territory, were attacked at night by a Thracian tribe where heavy casualties were suffered. Mardonius himself was also wounded in the surprise attack, though made sure that the tribe was pacified afterwards. Due to the losses suffered by the fleet and the casualties taken on land, Mardonius decided to pull the army back into more friendly lands and back across the Hellespont. Herodotus in his histories tells us that the main objectives of Mardonius' campaign were Athens and Eretria, though it seems that maybe this campaign was designed to reassert Persian rule in Thrace and Macedonia after the revolt, while also potentially providing a staging area for an invading force from the north into Greece. Herodotus working with hindsight may be assuming this campaign to have the same goals as the one the future King Xerxes would lead some 12 years later through the same regions. A second campaign was also in the works, and in 491, Darius sent out heralds to many Greek cities to test their attitudes towards the Persians, giving Darius a good idea of the path of least resistance and giving his army the most secure supply line. A herald was a person who made announcements and carried messages on behalf of a city, king or government that they represented. A herald usually carried a staff that identified the official role that they were carrying out. To bring harm against the herald in the course of their duties was considered a great crime and could even lead to war. A number of mainland Greek city-states and most of the islands in the Aegean that they visited provided favourable responses to the Persians' demands of earth and water. The city at the end of the path would be Athens, and it now seemed that the safest route there would be island-hopping through the Aegean. While the heralds were busy gathering information in Greece, the coastal towns in Ionia and Caria were ordered to construct and make ready transport ships that would be able to carry cavalry for the coming campaign. During the mission of the heralds in Greece, Herodotus relays two transgressions which would see war between Persia and Greece as inevitable. Once the heralds' mission arrived in Athens, demanding earth and water, the Athenians had the Persians thrown into a pit, never to return. In Sparta, a similar fate awaited the delegation, sent to collect the tokens of Spartan submission. Once their demand was announced, the Spartans threw the heralds down a well and told them to get their earth and water from down there. As we have said, the herald was a sacred position in the ancient world. For the Athenians and Spartans to have treated them this way would have made clear that there was no form of understanding between these city-states and Persia. Two new commanders were summoned to Susa before Darius. These two men were named Datus and Artaphernes, the same Artaphernes who was the governor at Sardis during the Ionian Revolt, 
It appears that Mardonius was relieved of his command either due to being still wounded, or as Herodotus says, due to his poor performance during the first campaign. The two commanders left with their forces and made for the plains northeast of the island of Cyprus, where they would meet up with the fleet that would carry them across the Aegean. The size of the army that they would command is not known for certain, as Herodotus just tells us that it was a powerful and well-equipped force. Though he does inform us that the fleet was made up of 600 triremes, though it is not clear if this number includes the transports for the cavalry. Later, ancient sources give troop numbers from 100,000 to 500,000, though it seems most modern historians think an army of somewhere around 20,000 to 25,000 seems more likely. The reasoning used here is that in Herodotus' later account of the second invasion by the Persians, he tells us that an extra 30 marines were added to a trireme's usual 14. It is assumed that the same may have occurred here 10 years earlier. This number is then multiplied by 600 ships, though it would be interesting to know if the rowers or a portion of them were equipped to fight also on land. The size of the cavalry force that accompanied the army comes down to pure guesswork, but historians look to other conflicts that took place not too long after the Greco-Persian Wars, where an idea is known. So most come to an estimate of around one to 2,000 cavalry. The Greeks didn't have any effective cavalry force, so this number would have been more than enough to provide superiority in this arm. The Persian campaign that was building up wasn't the only concern for the Athenians during this period. Much closer to home, they were dealing with open hostilities with another Greek state, that of the island of Aegina. When the Persians had sent out their heralds, Aegina was one of the polices to have acted favourably towards the Persian requests. The Athenians had seen this as a transgression against them, but the enmity between the two went much deeper than this gesture. Aegina was an island that lay in the Saronic Gulf, west of Attica. Just about everything that has come down to us about them is due to their interactions with Athens. In the 7th century and early 6th century BC, Aegina is what we can consider a thalassocracy, a sea power. But moving into the 6th century, Athens began competing with the island, with both having economic interests in the same area. We even hear of Solon limiting the amount of trade coming into Athens from Aegina. Reasons for their quarrels have also been explained due to religious transgressions, but it would seem economic competition was at the root of the cause. Active hostilities had been taking place since 507 BC between the two, but it would appear the majority of the period was spent at high tensions with one another. With this latest act, submitting to the Persian demands, Athens appealed to another staunch anti-Persian city-state, Sparta. Athens had seen Aegina's submission to Persia as an openly hostile act towards themselves. There was no other reason for them to take this action, so they thought. But in their appeal to Sparta, they presented their actions as traitorous against all of Greece. Sparta, who had only just recently dealt with Argos at the Battle of Sepia, had then become involved. One of the kings, Cleomenes, went to the island and attempted to arrest those responsible for Aegina's policy of submission, but the people of the island failed to cooperate. Back in Sparta, the other Spartan king, Demaratus, was once again working against Cleomenes, which we saw happening during the breakdown of the pair's march into Athens some 15 years earlier that we covered in our episodes on Athens. Demaratus had foiled Cleomenes' attempt in Aegina and had been slandering him at home. Upon Cleomenes' return to Sparta, he then set about having Demaratus deposed with a level of court intrigue taking place. With a combination of bribery at Delphi and an agreement made with Leotychides, who would become the new Spartan king, Demaratus was deposed. 
Cleomenes was able to successfully argue Demaratus was illegitimate to rule as a Spartan king. Demaratus would end up going into exile, where he would eventually end up in the Persian court. He would then make a reappearance in our story during the second Persian invasion under Xerxes. Cleomenes now had a new co-king, Leotigides, and the pair would now be successful in arresting the traitors to Greece in Aegina. The arrested men would then be sent to Athens, who would keep them as hostages, should Aegina feel the need to take action against them. Cleomenes' story doesn't end here, as his backroom dealings would eventually come to light, seeing him also fall from the heights of kingship. Though we will revisit this episode in Sparta's history, to flesh out the story some more when we look at the future king, Leonidas, in a few episodes' time. Back in Persia, all of Darius's planning had come to a head, and the empire was now about to directly insert itself into the Greek world. Datis and Artaphernes arrived on the coast and now had taken control of their entire force. They loaded the army aboard the ships and were ready to set sail into the Aegean. The fleet travelled up the coastline, making its way to the island of Samos, off the Ionian coast. From there they set out towards the Cyclades, an island chain in the Aegean. This route that the Persian fleet took, we are told by Herodotus, was due to the disaster that the earlier expedition encountered at Mount Athos. Though Darius's earlier intelligence gathering had shown this to be the path of least resistance to the Greek heartland, while also allowing him to incorporate more possessions into the empire. The Persian fleet's first port of call in the Cyclades was the island of Naxos, where the failed campaign of Aristagoras with Persian backing had helped lead to the decision of revolt breaking out in Ionia. Naxos still remained free, but this time around seeing such a large force bearing down on them, they did not prepare the city for a siege. The sack of Miletus has shown the fate of those who attempted to defend their city in the face of the Persian force. People of Naxos instead fled into the hills and the countryside as the Persians landed. This, though, was not enough to save them. They had defied the Persians back in 499, and now they had arrived in force for vengeance. The army moved through the surrounds of the city, killing and capturing as many of the people that had fled as they could. Before then departing Naxos to continue the voyage, the city was burnt to the ground, and the Persian commanders were satisfied that the island had been taught the perils of resisting Persian rule. Having made an example of Naxos for the rest of the Greeks, the Persians then set sail once again, this time approaching Delos. The Delians, having heard of the fate of Naxos, also fled, though the Persians were skilled in the use of the stick and the carrot, and this time they would be wielding the carrot, as Delos had not resisted the Persians previously. Datis paid huge respects to the Greeks' religion and burned a huge amount of frankincense as an offering to the god Apollo, pacifying the Delians. Frankincense was a highly sought-after incense used in religious ceremonies, made from the resin of the Boswellia family of trees. The fleet continued through the surrounding islands, with the Persians taking hostages from them to ensure good behaviour, as well as pressing men into service for the army. Resistance was futile as the Persians threatened and destroyed the livelihood of any island that did until they would inevitably submit. The Persian campaign so far had involved securing a link back to the empire, so to allow relatively unhindered operations in their rear. The information Darius had received before ordering the fleet to set sail had revealed the islands that would offer the least resistance, and therefore the safest path for the fleet. As seen, the Persian policy of reward and punishment were in full effect, with offerings and good intentions being extended to those prepared not to resist, though with the added security of taking some hostages to ensure no change of heart. Also present was the ever-large Persian fleet, on the horizon to provide a little more incentive to cooperate. 
On the other hand, those who had defied or would offer resistance saw their people captured and sent back as slaves into the empire. Their crops laid waste too, and even their cities burnt to the ground. The path now secured, the Persians approached the Greek mainland, though first one more act of vengeance had to be made before dealing with the Athenians. During the Ionian Revolt, the polis of Eritrea on the island of Euboea had sent five triremes to assist the revolt, and they were now going to face the Persians and suffer the consequences for their involvement. With the approach of the Persian force, the Eritreans assembled to discuss their best course of action. Opinion was divided with some wanting to defend the city, while some wanting to flee to the hills, while others wanted to hand the city over to the Persians and accept their terms. The Athenians had originally provided support to the Eritreans, but after it was seen that the city was doomed, they pulled back to Attica, determined not to be caught up in the ensuing catastrophe. Finally, the Eritreans came to a decision as the Persians hit the shores of Euboea. They would defend the city and so prepared for a siege. Persians unloaded their cavalry forces first and wasted no time in arranging an attack on the city. The appearance of cavalry may have played a big part in their decision to stay behind the city walls, so not to be caught out in the open. The siege lasted for six days, with hard fighting on both sides, until the city was betrayed to the Persians. The Persians, having not forgotten Sardis, and also making an example of the resistance, burnt the city and its temples, then rounded up the population and sent them back within the empire as slaves. It was now time to move on to the main prize, Athens. After the fall of Eretria, the Persians re-embarked and prepared to set sail for the mainland of Greece. Accompanying the Persian commanders was a figure from Athens' past that we have met before. As you may remember, Hippias had been the tyrant of Athens for around 17 years before being forced out in 510 BC. After his exile, he had made his way to the Persian court, where he would now be of use to them in 490 BC. Hippias, who was now approaching 60 years of age, guided the Persians to the same spot he had landed with his father some 50-odd years earlier. Hippias would be reinstalled as tyrant if the Persians were successful in capturing Athens, though he would ultimately be answerable to Darius. He directed the Persian force to the Bay of Marathon on the eastern coast of Attica. The spot was a large bay perfect for putting the ships ashore and also had open spaces and grazing for the cavalry. The Persians would be able to land and disembark unhindered as the Athenians lay 26 miles from the Bay of Marathon. So once word had arrived of their landing, it would take some time to meet the Persian force. The Athenians had not been idle during the Persians' crossing of the Aegean. They had, like other city-states, who had faced the prospect of Persian invasion, been deciding on the best course of action. The Athenians also were divided on how to react to the Persian threat. But after receiving news of the fate of Miletus and then Eretria, opinion was almost unanimous in resisting the Persians in the field. Though it appears there still may have been some support for cooperation with the Persians, we will revisit this when we look at the actual battle, as there still are some questions to this day on what occurred at Marathon. The Athenians arranged their citizens from the ten different tribes and assembled an army of 10,000 hoplites to march out and meet the Persians at Marathon. The polis of Plataea, located in the region of Boeotia, bordering Attica, was a city much smaller than Athens. They assembled 1,000 troops to also march out and they would join with the Athenians at Marathon. The Plataeans had not been involved in the Ionian Revolt, but had come to the aid of the Athenians due to Athens' past continued help against the Plataeans' more powerful neighbours, namely the Thebans. 
Though even with a force this size, the Athenians were going to meet an army at least twice their number. So just as the army was ready to march out, a runner by the name of Idipides was sent to Sparta to try and get more support to face the Persians. Pheidippides' mission would take him 150 miles or 240 kilometres to Sparta and then return to the army at Marathon. As we have discussed before, most of the terrain in Greece was ill-suited to travelling by horse. So some men had trained to be all-day runners, where they would literally run all day to deliver messages between cities. Pheidippides arrived in Sparta the day after leaving Athens, where he gave the message the Athenians had sent him with. He pleaded for the Spartans to march to Marathon to assist in the defence of Greece against the Persian invaders. Though the Spartans were in the middle of a religious ceremony known as the Carnea, where they were prohibited from engaging in warfare for its duration, and wouldn't be able to march to war until the moon was full, Pheidippides would now have to make the return journey to tell the Athenians that help would be some time away, and they would likely be facing the Persians with just the assistance of their Plataean allies. Pheidippides also told the Athenians of an encounter he had with a god during his journey. Whether he was having a mystical experience or having hallucinations from severe exhaustion, the god Pan made himself known to him. Pan was a god depicted as a man with the legs and horns of a goat, and he was associated with the woods, pastures and groves. Pan had inquired to why the Athenians had neglected in worshipping him in recent times, as he had been in great service to the city in the past, and will continue to be so in the future. This help that he alludes to appears to be in relation to another aspect of his that the Greeks were aware of. If Pan was awoken suddenly from his midday naps, he would give out a terrifying shout that would cause stampedes among flocks of sheep. This aspect of Pan is where we get our word panic from, and panic could easily take hold of an army in battle. So after telling the Athenians of his encounter, it was agreed that what Pheidippides was told needed to be taken seriously. Later on, the Athenians would construct a shrine to Pan on the northern slope of the Acropolis, and his worship would be reinvigorated. The story of Pheidippides' run to Sparta and back again, taking only a day and a half each way, had been for the most part of history considered impossible. Though in 1982, of our time, five British RAF officers wanted to test if the feat was possible. Three of the officers were able to complete the journey, with the fastest time being 34 and a half hours. The year after this, an annual event that is still run today was set up where competitors would run the roughly same route, known as the Spartathlon. The record time to complete the run stands at 20 hours and 25 minutes, which seems to give some vindication to Herodotus' account. The Persians were now putting ashore in the Bay of Marathon. The unloading of tens of thousands of troops would have taken some time, not to mention organising the forces to march out on Athens and securing a base of operations in the bay. It's unclear how long all this took for the Persians, but it was enough time for the force from Athens to arrive in the plains of Marathon, along with their Plataean allies. Suggestions have also been made that the Persians delayed marching out from Marathon, as it was thought it likely that the faction in Athens supporting cooperation with the Persians would win the day, therefore allowing them to march into the city unopposed. Also, although Marathon had a number of benefits to the Persians, there was also one major disadvantage once they arrived. For an army their size, there was only one viable route out of the plains, through the hills that surrounded the region. It has been proposed in modern accounts that a reasonably small force could have held the pass to exit Marathon, whether it was a small detachment sent earlier, or the hoplites around the region assembled there and held the pass until the main army arrived. 
Anyway, the Persians did not attempt to move out of Marathon, and the main Athenian force was able to assemble in the area, defending the exit. They set up camp in the sanctuary of Heracles, which provided an excellent defensive position due to the groves around the sanctuary protecting their flanks from cavalry, and the wooded area making an infantry attack on their position difficult. From the Athenian position lay a somewhat barren plain. The shoreline was to their right, and the hills stretching from their rear, continuing to their left, hemming in both armies in a natural arena. Cutting through the plains was a small river, running out to sea, and north of the river was what was known as the Great Marsh. Herodotus' account, which is the earliest on the period that survives today, tells us that the army was commanded by ten strategoi, or generals. Each general was supposed to be in command of the army on a different day, and a polymarch was also present, which you may remember was the archon in charge of matters of warfare from our Athenian episodes. Though Herodotus says that this was mostly an honorary position and could help break ties in voting. But it appears that he may have inserted his understanding of how the system worked in his own time and during times of peace. I need to keep in mind that Herodotus' work dates to a couple of generations after these events. It appears that in 490 BC, the Athenians still selected a polymarch who would be in command of the army and its highest authority in the field. The ten strategoi should probably be seen as making up a council of war and each of them would have been in charge of the contingents from each of the ten tribes. The ten strategoi could not agree on how to deal with the Persians at the opposite end of the field. Some of the generals were for not risking battle, but others wanted to close with the Persians at once. The standoff between the armies lasted for days, with neither side initiating action. Herodotus tells us that the strategoi then engaged in debate with how best to proceed, and that it appears that the argument for not engaging was going to carry the day. Though, now a man named Miltiades, who was one of the ten generals, enters the pages of history, perhaps altering its course through his actions. Well, from Herodotus' account, anyway. Miltiades had once been a tyrant in the Chersonese, situated around the modern-day Gallipoli Peninsula, where the tyranny had been passed down in his family. During the Persian expansion, Miltiades fell in with the Persian Empire, and even travelled with the Persian army and guarded a bridge over the Danube, during the Persian-Scythian campaign around 513 BC, which we briefly brought up in our Persian episodes. During this campaign, Miltiades meant to have argued with the other commanders that they should destroy all the bridges that had been constructed so that the Persians would be stranded in Scythian territory. The Ionians are meant to have hedged their bets and taken some of the bridge away, but when news that the Persians were returning in good order, they repaired it. Darius is supposed to have learnt of Miltiades' planned sabotage at the bridge, Amiltides was forced to flee his tyranny and would end up joining in the Ionian Revolt in 499 BC. He was involved in capturing the islands of Lemnos and Imbros, which he handed over to Athens, who he was seeking good favour with, and ended up fleeing back there. Once back in Athens, he escaped any harsh punishment when put on trial for his tyranny, and was able to enter into Athenian political life, where he eventually was elected as a strategos of one of the ten Athenian tribes. But now standing here at Marathon as one of the ten strategoi, he made his case to the other generals, and most importantly to Callimachus, the polemarch. Herodotus' account provides us with the speech that Miltiades is meant to have delivered that day, and we're going to end today's episode with the plea he addressed his fellow commanders with. It is now in your hands, Callimachus, either to enslave Athens or to make her free, and to leave behind you for all generations as a memory more glorious than even Harmodius and Aristogiton left. 
Never in our history have we Athenians been in such peril as now. If we submit to the Persians, Hippias will be restored to power, and there is little doubt what misery must then ensure. But if we fight and win, then this city of ours may well grow to preeminence amongst all the cities of Greece. If you ask me how this can be, and how the decision rests with you, I will tell you, we commanders are ten in number, and we are not agreed upon what action to take. Half of us for battle, half against it. If we refuse to fight, I have little doubt that the result will be bitter dissension. Our purpose will be shaken, and we shall submit to Persia. But if we fight before the rot can show itself in any of us, then, if God gives us fair play, we can not only fight but win. Yours is the decision. All hangs upon you. Vote on my side, and our country will be free. Yes, and the first city of Greece. But if you support those who have voted against fighting, the happiness will be denied you. You will get the opposite. Callimachus, after hearing Matardi's plea, now cast his vote. It was now decided the Athenians would be taking the fight to the Persians. Thank you for your continued support. To receive updates and to be notified of new episodes, you can subscribe at castingthroughancientgreece.com. Also, you can follow the series on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. I hope you can join me next time for episode 17, The Battle of Marathon.